Hello, KUI. This is Air Force Rescue. We have you loud and clear. Welcome to Craven Craven episode two, The Hills Have Eyes. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I am joined by my co-host for Craven Craven, the podcast devoted to the films of Wes Craven by the managing editor of DailyDead.com, the author of Monster Squad, the star of In Search of Darkness, the ultimate 80s horror documentary, and the producer, wait, I forgot, the co-host of the Corpse Club podcast and the producer of the upcoming The Festival, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. Hello. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, th- I think we got everything covered. I think so. Uh, yes. I think so. I'm doing it from memory. I didn't write these things down. So if I forgot anything, you can admonish me after the podcast. Uh, we want to thank everyone for tuning into our first episode and for following us on Twitter at Craven Craven Pod. Um, and we want to remind you all that uh, we have our very first Craven Craven merchandise available that ties into this episode, actually. It does, yes. You can, um, we'll post the link again on socials, but you can find our Abe Snake uh, t-shirt over on Redbubble. So, and, and uh, what is the, uh, the Abe Snake reference, Heather? Well, that would be a reference uh, to a little movie... That's Wes decided to make in between um, The Hills Have Eyes and The Last House on the Left called The Fireworks Woman, um, which sadly does not have a Wikipedia page. No, it does not. (laughs) It is sometimes called Angela is the Fireworks Woman. Yes. I mean, both both titles, I guess, work, Um, (laughs) you know, but um, because we are nothing but professionals here at Craven Craven, we both watched fireworks woman so we could uh discuss it before we dive into the hills have eyes today we could have called this episode the hills have thighs and then just really sort of blended together the the two together i like where your head is at maybe we should do that yeah Uh, although i think jim winorski already made a movie called the hills have thighs of course he did (laughs) that makes makes perfect sense Uh, under one of his many pseudonyms um None of them are as good as Abe Snake, though. Oh, gosh, no. There's no pseudonym as good as Abe Snake. Uh, Yes, co-written, edited by, and directed by Abe Snake, uh, who also has a bit of a starring role in the movie. I Let me just tell you, when when he shows up in the movie, I was like, oh, my God, please, for the Lord, for the love of God, I can't watch Wes Craven do porn. <laughs> Please keep your clothes on, sir. Because it's like it's like walking in on your parents doing right, it, I feel like. Right. And I just I was not mentally nor emotionally prepared to go there. Um but I like that he plays this mysterious man who's sort of full of wisdom for Angela. Young Angela who's so confused. So and here's my question about <laughs> Wes Craven's character or Abe Snake's character in The Fireworks Woman. Which is available if you're willing to look for it, everyone who's listening. And uh, uh, yeah, as Heather said, this was the movie he made between his two horror movies. He didn't want to direct another horror film, but instead he ended up directing porn because he couldn't get a job. And there was work directing porn. He had already worked in uh, porn prior to this. This is the only one that we know of that he directed Um uh, with a producer named Peter Locke, who, of course, he would reunite with for The Hills Have Eyes. The character that he's playing in The Fireworks Woman, we'll spend a couple minutes talking about The Fireworks Woman, and then we'll move on to The Hills Have Eyes. Is he the devil? I don't know. He's he's sort of... it. it you If you said that as your interpretation, I would be like, yes. Um, is he sort of... Horn's version of like the harbinger maybe i i don't know it's weird um he he definitely has some 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 insights for angela as as she's trying to figure out what she wants out of life 
beyond her brother's penis. Um, <laughs> I don't even think there's actually anything else that she wants in this life other than her brother's penis. Um, it's it's a fun little interesting cameo because it's like it's almost a, this weird sort of soulful moment. Um, I, I mean, I don't actually want to say it because the movie actually has sort of this theological theme to it where, you know, we're joking because it's it's porn, you know, and it's it's all about the sex. But it, it's there is an artfulness to this movie um, where I was I was slightly impressed with that aspect of it. Um, it's it's funny because like I, we were sort of just talking about like this, but I'm like, I don't know why we need 73 minutes of this movie. <laughs> It feels pretty straightforward. Like we know where this is going to end up. And it also feels really weird to be watching a movie where you, in the end you want to root for a sister and her brother to get together so they can have sex for the rest of their lives. Exactly. But that's what this movie is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you like, the priest at the end, who like does the blessing as he sees them sail off. And, but then the he sunset. morphs into the devil, right? He morphs into Abe snake. Like, there's so much going on in this movie and I found myself fascinated by so much of it because it definitely is like an art film that happens to have some hardcore sex in it. You know, it's like, and, and a lot of the sex scenes are mercifully pretty short because as I was watching it with my wife last night, she oh. was, she was there more for the sex. <laughs> like she was yeah. more about the, uh, the hardcore scenes. And I was like, can, can we get through this so we can get back to the story? <laughs> like I was really more <laughs> invested because sure. I was trying to watch it. I was trying to watch it. I, well, I was very much in like podcasting mode and I was really trying to watch this as a, as a Wes Craven movie. And I was like, what are the themes that are going to come up again in his work? And what is he trying to say here? And are there going to be any booby traps? Right. And uh, and I'm not even making a pun like because we'll get to the booby <laughs> traps when we talk about the Hills Have Eyes. But um, I didn't have a patience for a lot of the, the sex scenes, but I thought it was so fascinating that right off the bat, you know, we talked about on our first episode where we talked about Last House on the Left, we talk about how transgressive that movie is and how Wes Craven is crossing lines that he didn't even necessarily know he was crossing. He just went deep into his psyche and um, pulled out this crazy movie about rape and revenge and right off the bat in this movie. I mean, almost the first thing we see is a brother and sister having sex and it's like, Oh, so oh. he just is all about shattering taboos right off the bat. Uh, and then we find out that the brother is a priest. And so now it's this priest who's lusting after his own sister and a sister who's lusting after her priest brother and considering Wes Craven's, you know, deeply religious upbringing, like what is going on in this movie in terms of what he has to say about theology and religion. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause like when Angela, like I think there's like two different scenes when she shows up at the church and she's almost dressed like, like very virginal where she has like the, the thing over her head. So it's almost like in a mimicking of like Virgin, the Virgin Mary, which was, I thought was kind of interesting. Again, I've like, I wasn't expecting for there to be like some nuance to this. Well, there's kind of um, a, a fantasy scene where she's basically Mary Magdalene, right? After he kind of self flagellates with the belt, yeah. she's there tending to his wounds, uh, almost like Mary Magdalene. So there's all this kind of religious iconography and ideology in this debate. You know, that's why I kind of posed that Abe Snake is perhaps the devil because he seems to be manipulating events one way. And he's saying, no, 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 go fuck your brother. Uh, <laughs> and if he won't fuck you, organize this orgy and he'll be drawn to it and then he'll fuck you. Um, and then on the, the other side, the right on the other side, the brother is, uh, you know, talking to one of the higher ups in his church. And yet they're both being given the same advice. The dialogue is almost verbatim word for word. There's a great article um, that was sent to me by our mutual friend, Joe Madry. Um, and it comes from his book called beyond fear, but it's an article specifically about the fireworks woman. And it talks about the sort of duality of, you know, this Abe snake character is he the devil? Is he just some sort of demagogue? Um, these characters being pulled in opposite directions, right? But they're essentially one in the same because they're giving the exact same advice verbatim. And then at the end of the movie, they're revealed to be 
the same being. And what is that supposed to be saying then if this, uh, this priest is the same as this horny devil, like what is Craven saying about religion? That they're just both like two sides of the same, two yeah. sides of the same coin or something like, or yeah. two. Yes. Is that what the saying is? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I will tell you my favorite shot of the whole movie is the, in the opening when it's like, we're having like the Woodstock esque uh, dancing orgy, which sure. I love. It's like, how do you make Woodstock hornier than it already was? <laughs> This is this is how you do it. But then there's like at one point there's just like a shot of a dog. Like okay. out, of, out of nowhere, like there's a dog walking around and yeah. you're like, uh, uh, OK, is the dog getting involved? What is happening here? Thankfully, the dog doesn't <laughs> just no. just blood relations are fucking yeah. in this movie. Not. Yes. There's yes, no bestiality. Only. But incest. I was just like. But it was just like weird because it's like all these people like all over each other. And then we're like, here's a dog. <laughs> all right. Back to the vaginas. Like it was just it was really weird. I, it's funny. I was <laughs> I was thinking last night. I was like, you know, I always wonder like why movies like back then were like rated X necessarily because like obviously grooming styles have changed over the years where I'm just like, you can't see anything hardly in this movie anyway. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I think you probably could have gotten away with like a soft X on this movie. 1975 um, was a hairier time. It really was. And, you know, thank God at least maybe attractive people do porn now. Because um, there's there's some people that was like, really? This is sexy? <laughs> there, right. was, there was one guy that uh, my wife and I took to calling Nacho Libre. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> he was in the orgy at the end. <laughs> and again, we get, you know, Angela kind of standing above this orgy watching it all. And she's in this dress that almost has like a... A snake, snake skin look to it. yeah, like a snakeskin look to it, and I'm like, is this some Garden of Eden shit? Like, is she the snake in the Garden of Eden? There's, it's, it's a fascinating movie if you can get past the, you know, the hardcore sex and just look at it as a Wes Craven movie where he's working out some of these ideas. And there's a lot of, you know, again, dream imagery. Angela is constantly dreaming and fantasizing about. Uh, being with her brother again. And so obviously dreams play a huge role later in Wes Craven's filmography. There is a, an unfortunate rape sequence that is reminiscent of the rape sequence in uh, Last House on the Left. Um, so there are definitely things you can pull out of it as being like, oh, this, I can see the hand of the filmmaker who made this movie as opposed to some sort of anonymous smut peddler who's uh cranking out porn this is sort of the work of an auteur yeah i also thought it was interesting because they had that character he kind of appears like here and there where it's like the guy with like the big hats who's like dancing in the opening and then he's kind of like in like some like transition shots throughout the movie um and he really reminded me of in the beginning of serpent of the rainbow yeah where um when they're in haiti and he's not one of the characters that's like related to like take McKay's like group of guys. Um, but you see him in the beginning where he's got like, he's painted up like a skeleton. He's got the big hat on with like the jacket. And it was interesting. Cause I was watching that. I was like, wow, that kind of reminds me of like serpent in the rainbow, which again, serpent fireworks, woman, right. Abe snake. It all comes full circle. Porn parody title of serpent in the rainbow, serpent and the rainbow. Oh, nice. Porn parody title of shocker. Shocker. <laughs> I don't know. Like, how would you? Uh, now we have to come up with porn parody names for for all of them. Uh, yeah, it would probably get way too dirty, and maybe we don't want to do that on just our second episode. Yeah, we'll save that for like the third or the fourth. <laughs> you already came up with the porn parody title for this week's uh, movie or this month's movie, "The Hills Have Thighs." Yes, I. I mean, you know, it, that that was a pretty easy, just sort of, you know. So toss that one in there. Um, but I guess Jim Wynorski beat me to it. So thanks a lot for stealing my thunder. If I had a nickel for every time Jim Wynorski beat me to something. You'd have a nickel? The connection. I would have a nickel. The connection between uh, Jim Wynorski and Wes Craven. Jim Wynorski uh, made Return of Swamp Thing. Oh, that is correct. He did, didn't See he? See how we were sticking to the theme here, people. Oh, yeah. So see, this is why you're the professional, and I'm just sort of here for the ride. I don't know about that. Did you hear that list of credits at the start of the show? I believe you are the <laughs> professional, and I'm just Robin. 
<laughs> At least you're not Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that one's for you, Risky. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say about the fireworks woman, or should we get into talking about uh, The Hills Have Eyes? Um, I think we can get into The Hills Have Eyes. But yeah, if anybody's curious about it, I may or may not have found it on a website called Pornzog.com. Which is um, also the name of my pornographer robot. <laughs> I Pornzog. am Pornzog. Now you're talking like Joel David Moore and Grandma's boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I modeled Pornzog after. Nice. That would be annoying after like a, a minute. <laughs> by the way, porn directed by robots is super weird to watch. I, I I didn't even know that was a thing. Of course, I didn't even know 3D porn existed until you told me about that earlier. It so sure does. I, I'm completely out of the loop. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, uh, you know. I, I've never seen robotic porn before, but I'm sure it's out there. Well, you should see what Pornzog comes up with. Um, so let's <laughs> talk about The Hills Have Eyes, widely referred to as Wes Craven's second film, uh, a myth. Obviously, we just smashed, but... Um, Boom. Yeah. Uh, he was not looking to make another horror film. He had kind of made his horror film and wasn't looking to make another one, but again, couldn't get work. Uh, there was work in porn and then Peter Locke said, make another horror film. And Wes Craven was kind of resistant to it, but eventually agreed and went and wrote, um, the Hills have eyes kind of based on this legend of, of, uh, a guy named Sawney Bean who supposedly lived in Scotland or in the 1400s. And they would, they were sort of this clan family that would capture and kill and eventually eat uh, travelers. And he used that as the jumping off point to come up with uh, The Hills Have Eyes, which is essentially about a family that breaks down in the desert and comes into contact with this feral cannibal family that uh, attacks and kills and eats some of them while the others are forced to fight back. There, I think he's revisiting some of the themes of Last House on the Left. This is sort sure. of a a more polished reworking of some of those same ideas about how civilized people can pretty easily resort to violence if need be, right? If If the situation calls for it, yeah. whether it's to take revenge for your murdered daughter or to survive in the desert against this cannibal family, how quickly civilization can turn to savagery is essentially what the movie is about. Um, are you a fan of this one? Um, I am. And I wouldn't say it's one that I revisit very often, um, but I, I didn't see it until in high school was sort of the first time I ever watched it. Um, I, for some reason, I just, I don't remember really seeing it very often at the video store when I was a kid. Um, so I don't think I really got around to it until I was in high school and I was looking for weird things to rent with my friends. Um, you know, and it was one of the blind spots that I had, you know, in terms of, uh, Craven's filmography. Um, I mean, it definitely has some rough edges. I think I like it more now as an adult than I did back then. Um, because I guess like now I can sort of appreciate what he was trying to do here in terms of, you know, the quote unquote nuclear family, if you will, I guess pun uh -huh. sort of intended there. Um, because obviously, you know, it's, it's two families sort of fighting to the death. Um, and obviously the cannibal family, um, you know, they're, they're doing really terrible, horrible things, but also they're sort of a victim of their circumstances. Right. And we're some would argue in some ways, like, Krug and Krug and his family in Last Town of Soul and Left, they are sort of a victim of their circumstances too, if you want to look at it that way. They're terrible people, but they've also been through some stuff that have sort of made them a product, you know, of of these really horrible, you know, things. You know, and it just so happens in this one, it's like, you know, testing that's happened, you know, in the area. Um, and it's interesting because like I always think whenever I'm driving through Nevada you know, I always think of this movie now because it's like, you never go on the side roads. You always stick to the main <laughs> highways. And it's funny. Cause like, I remember it, 
it, it really, I had these like really intense flashbacks to this uh, when I was rewatching this uh, last night. So when I was driving to Chicago last year, um, I was, you know, I was taking main highways and there's like a stretch in Utah that you go through, like through the mountains. And I passed by a gas station and I still had like 120 miles like on my tank. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, obviously it's Utah. And I've been driven to Utah before for Sundance and stuff. So I was like, oh, I should be fine. And so I start getting into the mountains and then all of a sudden I see a sign and like the next big, the next town is like 106 miles. Oh, geez. And I was like, oh, holy shit, what am I going to do? So I really thought about doing like a U-turn on the highway and going back. And that's really what I should have done. And if I got a ticket, I got a ticket and just dealt with it. Um, but I went on, which was the bad mistake. So then I'm just driving and like I'm getting nervous. My gas tank's going lower. And then I finally see like this like little highway. There's a sign for it and it says gas. And I was like, okay. And so I get off the highway there and I start taking like this like little mini highway. And so I'm driving for about 20 minutes and I finally hit this little small town. Well, the gas station's completely closed down. And now I'm at like 36 miles on my tank. Oh my goodness. And I was like, holy shit, I don't know what to do. And the even better part was my cell phone wasn't working. <laughs> of um, course. So I'm like in a I've seen movies. Movie. Yeah. And I was just like, I seriously, I like, I was, the only thing I could do to keep myself from crying was just being like, Oh my God, how many freaking horror movies have you watched in your lifetime? And you let this happen. <laughs> like, how could you do this? Like, there was a thing like Brian was even like, you stop for gas often. You don't do this. You, you know, you see movies, you don't be that stupid. And sure enough, I'm in this position. So I just kept going because I was like, well, there's gotta be another town. Right. And I literally pulled into this gas station, like in this, again, finally, I found like a little, like another 35 minutes. And I found this little town way down on the, like even further down. And it was like, I had like 12 miles to my tank. The story so, is giving me anxiety. Oh my gosh. And it like, it threw off through my whole trip, like on the way out to Chicago, completely off. Cause I, it was like an hour. Now I was an hour off the highway at this point. By the time everything was said and done, I couldn't call anybody. I couldn't do anything. It was like all these tiny little shacks and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I can't go to people's houses cause I'm going to get murdered. <laughs> So I, it was like, thank God I finally found this gas station. And like, I walked in like, cause I had to like, I had to pee and I was like, and there's like three people and they're just staring at me. I was like, I know I don't belong here. I get it. I just have to use the bathroom and I'm the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God. But it was like one of those, that, like, it was like literally an hour off the highway by the time I finally found gas and then like had to go back. And it was like, I was such a nervous wreck the entire time. I was like, I can't believe it. But the whole time I was thinking about was the Hills have eyes because I was like, you know, getting stranded like off the highway because that's like that's how the whole thing starts is they basically end up on the wrong road. Right. And I was like, how how did I do this? Like, why why am I so stupid? And at that point, like when I realized, like when I got off of that gas station, like I didn't even have enough gas to go back on the highway and go back towards the gas I knew because I wouldn't have made it up over the mountain. I was like, oh my god. So yeah. So it was like one of those like when I was watching this last night, I was like, I was totally flashing back to my Chicago trip last year and just being like a complete wreck. Like I, I literally, my hands were shaking and I was like all alone. I'm trying to enjoy it cause like the sun was setting. So it's really pretty. And it's like this really nice, like deserty landscape and I'm learning, but I'm like, ultimately I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to die out here and nobody's going to know. So that wasn't terrifying, but yeah, it's, and it's one of those, like, I think that, you know, that really, that's what I like about this movie is that it really does, tap into something very primal in terms of your survival skills. Mm -hmm. um, when you, when you think you just have, there's nothing, there's no help coming. And what are you going to do? Um, and for me, like I realized, no, I'm not really good in those situations. Like I just kept going, but like if there hadn't been that gas station, we may not even be doing this podcast right now. Cause I could be <laughs> like, you know, stuck in some tiny little town somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those, like I really, I really have come to appreciate it more and more, um, you know, and obviously we'll talk about the remake more, but I do, I, you know, I like this one a lot, but I actually think the remake is a little more polished and a little more well-constructed, I guess. Yeah. The remake is definitely more polished and I really like the remake. I think I saw, I came to this even later than you. I think I saw the remake first. Um, oh really? Yeah, we went to see the remake like opening night, and I don't think I had ever seen the original. Or if I had, I just had no memory of it, because my first real memory of seeing 
the original was as part of like a 12 or 16 hour marathon um, that a somebody used to the guy who used to program the 24 hour marathons that they used to do at the music box uh, okay. which they used to call the music box massacre he started programming something called terror in the aisles <clears throat> and it was just they were shorter marathons and so i got to see this theatrically on 35 millimeter for the first time and oh, wow. watching it i was kind of struck by like oh this is just a lot like the remake only rougher and less violent um, and so I was very much of the mind that I preferred the remake and having watched both of them in the span of a couple of days, I actually think I've come around and now I kind of prefer the Wes Craven one. If only for the reason that it does in like 89 minutes, what it takes the remake about 120 to do. Yeah, that's fair. I could see that. Um, yeah, I, I still really that. like the remake. I'm not even, I'm not saying anything bad about the remake. The remake kind of invents a third act that the, the original this, this doesn't, movie doesn't have. really have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's good, you know, because otherwise it would just be almost like a shot for shot copy of the original. Cause it does follow the beats very, very closely until that third act. And then it kind of branches out into its own territory, which is good. That's what you want from a remake. I think I was just like, oh yeah, the the original kind of makes these points in a shorter amount of time. But I, you know, both movies can coexist yeah. side by side on the shelf, and I like both of them. Um, I had I I had had something that I wanted to say about the original. Oh, because you were talking about no one's going to come save you. You know, no one's going to help you. One of the things that really struck me on this viewing that, for whatever reason, never occurred to me. A big deal is made out of two things. One, that Big Bob is a cop. And two, yeah. that Ethel, his wife, is deeply religious. And her answer to their predicament is, let's come together and pray. Pray, yeah. And it's fascinating that Wes Craven is kind of like saying, these two systems that are in place to protect, protect us... You. Uh, mean nothing <laughs> they mean nothing out here and they will fail you and you will die uh horribly uh at the hands of this family uh in the case of big bob you know he's essentially crucified which again brings up imagery that we see in the fireworks woman there's a shot of the brother uh essentially in the jesus pose um yeah and we come back to that with big bob uh as he's burned at the stake you know crucified um, yeah, I was really struck by that idea that like law and order are meaningless. God is meaningless. Not, none of that's going to help you here. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Cause like, I'm, I'm really glad that we're doing this, like this whole series because it really has, you know, I, I knew, you know, Wes obviously had a religious background. Um, and I knew, you know, cause obviously like he went to Wheaton college and things like that. Um, but I, I guess I never really realized, like, especially like in his earlier films, like how much that was parlayed into there. Like, I don't I don't know that I necessarily would say, like, I see it more in like something like Vampire in Brooklyn or Red Eye or anything like that. Um, but I think, you know, whenever he does sort of tap into that, you could feel like it's a very personal thing for him. Mm hmm. Um, you know, that he's obviously somebody who struggled, you know, with the role that religion played in his life. Um, and he was sort of working through some things, I think, through his art. Um, you know, we get that obviously, you know, in Last Toss on the Left, you know, the fireworks I'm in this film, you know, even to a degree, which we'll get to it, you know, when we get there is like Serpent in the Rainbow, um, the idea of like the soul and, you know, what happens to you after death and things like that. Um, and it's interesting because, like, you know, I know people back then were always, you know, sort of dismiss horror as just sort of like schlocky art, you know, without real substance to it. Um, but I, you know, I'm so glad, like, you can look at movies, like, through a different lens and give it some time um, because it really does make me appreciate. Like, I, I would really love, you know, we've had some great books. I'm glad you mentioned Joe Madry um, because I have Beyond Fear, uh, which is a really fantastic book. Yes. Um, and... I would love to see somebody dive into the religious aspects of Wes's filmography. Um, I, I, do, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it because I, I have a very 
sort of Pentecostal background. So I don't think I would be the right person to sort of do something like that. But I would love to see somebody really go in there and like pull back the layers even more so than we're doing because I think they're there. Um, Because there's certain things I, I still remember from the Bible that like, you know, obviously we're very relevant to what we were seeing in, in these three films in particular so far. Um, you know, and I think there's something really interesting about that. Um, and I think, again, that's what, uh, why I've, I've always sort of seen Wes as sort of a standout. Cause like, and I don't mean this as any disrespect to like Toby, you know, Hooper or anything like that, but like, I don't get the same sense of him wrestling with like personal demons in poltergeist, for example. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, and I, again, I was just cause you know, poltergeist is like one of my all time favorite movies. Um, you know, so it's just, it's interesting that there is, you know, when somebody says like, you know, oh, horror is just, you know, there to, you know, shock or elicit response. You know, I think people a lot of times will just sort of dismiss the surface of these and just sort of not realize the deeper things that are going on. Um, and I do kind of wish like, I almost wish I had seen this a little bit earlier, like especially when I was going through like, like my, my first film class. Because I think that there's like, you know, as much as like we were talking about like, you know, hoity-toity fancy movies, like I think there's a really interesting like discussion to be had about this movie uh, and what it represented, especially like in the late 70s, you know, especially, you know, as a response to the Vietnam War. Because it's like you look at these two families, you know, and obviously it's it very much is, you know, sort of deconstructing what the family unit is. Um, but like ultimately, like, you know, the family that lives in the mountains are terrible, horrible, cannibal people. But like, why does the other family have more of a right to live than they do? Right. And, you know, and I think that's that's an, an interesting aspect because we're so quick to villainize them. And they are villains because they're awful people who want to eat a baby. Um, well, babies but, like, are delicious. I mean, they are. They to really be fair. Are. Ask, Chris, ask Chris Evans. He knows what babies taste like. That's right. I forgot um, about that. Yeah. Captain America has eaten babies, everybody. <laughs> um, I, how's your hero? How's your hero uh, now, everybody? Um, but like, you know, it's so we're, because of where we are as a society, we're so quick to like go and basically like side with the Carter family. Um, but I think there's something really interesting about, you know, uh, Jupiter and his family, you know, and I also sort of love that they're all sort of celestial named after celestial beings, mm-hmm. if you will, or entities or whatnot, except for Ruby, um, which again, I think is a is sort of on purpose because it's her sort of being different from the rest of the family. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I think it's, again, it's one of these movies where it's like, you know, it's shocking, it's violent, it's cruel at times. Um, but there's, there's just something really beautifully subtle about the things that are going on in this movie um where i do wish when we talked about craven's movies like it's it's always sort of the nightmare scream discussions which i'm guilty of doing myself but like there's something to be said for these other films that he's done where he's really sort of tried to to ask some hard questions of both himself and i think viewers that are watching the movies as well yeah that's what makes him such a unique uh kind of figure among the masters of horror is his movies are so cerebral and lots of horror movies are cerebral. George Romero's horror movies are very cerebral, you know, but Wes Craven's are, are in a different way. Like philosophically cerebral. Yeah, exactly. Um, just the whole notion of, you know, blurring the lines at the end of the film between the two families. And he sets them up as mirror images of one another but to end the movie the way he does kind of blurring the lines between the two and saying, you know, this, this fan, like Doug, as he's beating, what's his name to death, um, is doing what he has to do to survive. And that's no different than what the, for, for, for lack of a knowing what else to call them, I'll call them the Jupiter family. I always want to call them the Firefly family, but we'll get to that because um, <laughs> Rob Zombie might owe this movie some royalties. Um, they're just doing what they need to do to survive. You know, as you said, they're they're painted as evil because they kill a dog, because they want to eat a baby, because they rape Brenda. They do awful things, 
but they're essentially, you know, this group of people that were sort of cast out and forgotten by American society, uh, left to live in this nuclear wasteland. Um, and they're just doing what they need to do to get by, right? They're eating people as a source of food, not just because they're being dicks. And yeah. it's very reminiscent of the Sawyer family in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, again, this family that sort of has been left behind by capitalist America doing what they need to do to survive. And you came into their space, you know, like they didn't come out looking for you. You wandered into their territory. And that's why it's kind of this allegory for the Vietnam War, right? Isn't that we have... We're occupying their space and they play by a different set of rules. Yeah. Uh, and so we villainize them because it makes it easier for us to kill them. But maybe we're not so different. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I love that you sort of mentioned um, Doug in this because, I, again, it was one of those like, you know, I like the movie because I always loved Dee Wallace. Um, and was she ever not like a mom character? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I mean, she's horror's mom and I love that. And she's amazing. And she's a really sweet woman. But I was like, this poor girl, like just came into Hollywood. and was basically like, you're now a mom character. Right. Here's a baby, you know? Um, but I really, you know, I think when I was rewatching it, I was really, really impressed uh, with Martin Spear in this movie. Um, and in a way his character clicked with me this time that just hadn't happened before. Um, and just the, the trauma that he has to face in such a short amount of time, you know, between the fact that, you know, his father's burned alive, his mom is shot and ultimately dies, you know, his wife is shot and immediately killed. And then his baby gets taken by cannibals. Like, it's not even like, not even like that your baby getting taken already is bad enough, but you know that the baby, like, they're not going to raise that baby. They're right. going to eat that baby. Right. So, like, you know, ultimately, that's, like, a really big switch, you know, that you have to kind of, like, flip on. And, like, you know, we all, like, want to say, like, we want to, like, posture ourselves and be like, oh, well, if I was in this situation, I would do this and this and this. Like, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. Like, would I have run up into those mountains like that and, you know, basically, you know, gone to rescue? Like, I probably would have tried, but I most likely would have died. Um, you know, and I think there's something really interesting about his character in this movie. Um, and he very much upon rewatching it, I think he's like my favorite. Okay. Um, because there's a real, there's a real sense of tragedy to the way that, that Martin plays the character. Um, you know, where at first, like everything's great. They're on a family vacation and everything's happy and how quickly everything just turns for him yeah. in particular Yeah. and how he has to like, pull himself together to, to deal with this much like the parents in last house on the left. Um, and I just think it gives a really, really, really good performance in this movie that again, I, you know, I've seen it before. I knew I liked it, but there was just something that really hit me hard about it this time uh, in particular. Well, I think everything changes, you know, again, as we're watching these specifically to podcast on them, we're watching them, sort of hyper aware of them as Wes Craven movies and looking for some of these common themes and common motifs. And that's kind of what I was talking about with the fireworks woman that I was disengaged from the sex because I was so fascinated watching it as a Wes Craven movie. And I was so hyper attuned to some of those thematic constants that, um, that we're kind of looking for. And I was definitely, I think some of that, hyper attentiveness is what gave this original 1977 film the advantage for me over the remake which is slicker but you know um a little more soulless and i like the soul of the west craven original because i think he's incapable of making a movie without soul because that's just the kind of filmmaker that he is even when we get into some of his like for higher thrillers in the uh, 2000s. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Red Eye. Like, I, I wouldn't call that movie soulless, even though it is essentially a, an, uh, an engine designed to entertain, right? That's right. kind of like what 
the purpose of that movie is, but I think it's still a soulful movie in the relationship, you know, between Rachel McAdams and her dad and stuff. Um, I, when I was in grad school, I read this article and I wish I could remember <laughs> the book is in the other room and I'm not going to go grab it, but it was this essay about the difference between secure horror and paranoid horror. And it was talking about horror of the 1950s and 60s and horror of the 1970s. Um, that in the 1970s, we, ish, we ushered in this age of paranoid horror. And there were all these kind of rules for what made up paranoid horror. But Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre were very much movies that were sort of of the paranoid horror. There were no rules that there was no explanation for the evil, that there was no... Um, happy resolution. There were all these different rules. And I wrote this paper about how the remakes of a lot of these paranoid horror films um, actually returned them to a place of security. So in Texas Chainsaw, you know, in the Texas Chainsaw remake, we have the explanation for why Leatherface is the way he is. We have sort of the restoration of the family unit because Jessica Biel has the baby at the end of the movie. And the remake of Hills Have Eyes kind of does the same thing. First of all, it goes much into much greater detail in terms of explaining why this family is the way they are because they're literal nuclear mutants. We get that sort of atomic testing opening credits. We have the big brain mutant guy like monologue basically about how we were left behind. Um, it also makes a change in that it, it follows more closely the original ending of Wes Craven's movie and that it reunites the family. Um, so Doug gets the baby back, reunites with Bobby and Brenda <clears throat> and it kills Ruby. Ruby yeah. goes over the side of a cliff to save the baby and to save Doug, and it wipes out this family. This family now, you know, that bloodline no longer exists because they've all been killed off. So we can sleep knowing, okay, all of the nuclear mutants are dead, even the one that we kind of liked. Um, the original ending, so it goes to a much more secure place. The original ending of the Wes Craven movie finds the families reuniting with Ruby and sort of taking her hand and so there is an element of like restoring the family unit and creating a new family unit with Ruby, but I much prefer the theatrical ending, which just goes to red as yeah. Doug is beating the guy to death. Yeah, no, I agree. By the way, you totally threw me off when you said Jessica Biel. Right. Did I get that wrong? She's not in the Hills Have Eyes remake. In the Texas Chainsaw remake, I was talking. Oh, about. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. That's fine. I was I was still stuck on it. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, what am I? That's like, not her said, in the Hills I Have Eyes. No, I was like, I was literally like having like I was like, oh my god, am I totally remembering this movie wrong? I was like, did she do multiple remakes? Holy crap! Wow, I am so on top of my. No, game she today. ends up with a baby at the end of the Texas Chainsaw remake. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was sort of like, here's a baby. Everybody gets a baby. <laughs> you get a baby. Um, you get a baby. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting because, um, well, it's funny when you talk about the remake because also uh, Laura Ortiz, who I believe was in Holliston. You are correct. Is in it. Um, and also, it's funny, it's a fr uh, an actor who became a friend of mine, uh, Ezra Buzzington, is also in the remake as well. As one of, of the mutants? Yeah, okay. yeah, he's a, he's a really fun guy. He's he plays a lot of scary characters, but he is uh, he's a really nice guy. Nice, uh, of course. Like you know, it's, it's, what I actually like about the remake is the fact that Ted Levine isn't a bad guy in it. Like, because right. he's like he's a guy that like he's always it's kind of an asshole though. He is, of course, he is. But Big know. Bob is kind of an asshole in the original too. He is, you know, he's a he's you know, he that's just the, the character, but he wasn't like. I think you know, like after Silence of the Lambs, like everybody just sort of saw Ted Levine as like this super creepy guy, right? Right. Um, which I think is is still a thing. Like you know, if you have Ted Levine in a movie, I'm already not going to trust him. <laughs> just never going to trust him. Well, that's um, part of what I love about The Mangler, which is a movie that doesn't get enough love, and obviously I'm going to be a fan because it's a Toby Hooper movie. But he casts Ted Levine as this cop who's the hero of the movie yeah. and just completely <laughs> works against all of your preconceived notions of Ted Levine. So right off the bat, Toby Hooper's kind of fucking with you, you know? Uh, it's such inspired casting. 
It's very noir, uh, his character, too. Like, I feel like his movies, his character's in a totally different movie than I think a lot of the rest of the movie is. Um, <laughs> but I would watch both movies. Um, you know, it's, it's a rough movie for me. I don't know if it necessarily all works, but... Oh, it all works. There's two very distinct movies, I feel like, in that movie. Um, but I would watch both. All right. So, and I, I like The Mangler. I, you know, I think I still gave it, like, a three out of five. Like, I would not call it, like, top, you know, top-tier Hooper, but... It's you know, underrated like. Hooper. Ah, or underappreciated. We're not allowed to say underrated. Oh, sorry. Anymore. All right. Underappreciated. Yes. Underappreciated is, is the term where we're, it's okay to use that now. Got so it. I need to change yeah. my vocabulary. I apologize I you, to everyone. I know you're not on offended. Twitter enough to know these, how these things no, work. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to but, everyone who was hurt by my use of the word underrated. <laughs> um, but yeah, don't be, a gate, don't be gatekeeping on, on, on the underrated, underappreciated. I apologize. Um, everyone see the yeah. mangler. Yes. It's, you know, it's fun. Um, I actually like to watch it during October. So, you know. Great thing I, about I, the I, mangler is that it works all year round. It, it does. It does. But it's fun in October, especially um, what I what I what I really like about Hills Have Eyes um, is that it, it is very much to me like an amalgamation of a bunch of different types of movies, um, because it's interesting. I've seen people call it a rape revenge movie. And I don't I know, agree with that. I don't agree with that either, because yeah. I know um, Pluto, that's uh, Michael Berryman's character. Like, I know he goes into the, the thing and I know he's holding Brenda for a while and then Jupiter comes in and there's like a tussle, but there's never any sort of sexual violence, I don't believe. I think there's an implied rape that happens off screen. Um, okay. I think it's made a little bit more explicit in the remake, but it still yeah. does happen off screen. It's not... Okay. Um, but you could perhaps make an argument that it doesn't happen. I I interpret it as it having happened, which is deeply unpleasant uh, and as an, an unfortunate theme through Wes Craven's first three movies. Um, but you're right. There, it doesn't happen on, on – we don't see it happen. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of those like – I. I don't the know, family is not like, taking even if, if even if we agree that Brenda is raped, the movie is not about the family taking revenge for that. Yeah, like when she goes into action, I can understand maybe her being motivated by it, um, but I don't know that necessarily. Like Bobby knows what happened because he was outside of the trailer at that right. point. Um, but yeah, for me, like this sort of just feels like obviously like a road movie, which I love road movies to begin with. Um, and it sort of, you know, it, it has sort of like those tinges of like Westerns where you have like the two families squaring off against each other, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys, except the McCoys are a bunch of cannibals. <laughs> well, and I've seen it characterized as a Western specifically because the cannibal family, the Jupiter family, as I've taken a call of them, um, could represent the Native Americans and the way that Native Americans are portrayed in a lot of early Westerns, you know, if you go back to like the 1940s and 1950s, yeah. um, that again, this was their land. They were uh, ignored, forgotten, robbed, and are doing what they need to do to survive on their land. And then we come in and kill them, right? Because, yeah. hey, we're white and we get to survive, um, which I think is an interesting reading of the movie as well. Yeah, I also sort of feel like it's sort of like obviously a deconstruction of like the class system, which I, I would even argue is, is something that's in the, the last house on the left, because Mary in uh, her family are like sort of seen as like the haves where, you know, Krug and his family are the have nots and they feel entitled to what the haves have. Absolutely. Um, and you could argue that that's what this is, too, because like you see, you know, for lack of a better term, the Jupiter family come down. And start pulling stuff out of the fridge and collecting all these things because they're going to take it because they feel entitled because they don't have these things. Right. Um, and almost you'd almost wonder, like, in, in this instance, like, if the the cannibals living up in the hills, like, had just come down and been like, hey, people, like, do you have any food you could share? I mean, Ethel being a religious person, although you think religious people would be more forthcoming we're learning these days maybe not so much um you know i feel like athlete would have been like oh would you like something do you need something yeah um 
you know, as opposed to just taking it. But again, I also think that that speaks to like American imperialism where like we're just worse as a country. We've just always taken from other countries. And even when we, you know, when, you know, as you mentioned, like indigenous people, like we just take land, we just take resources. Like we don't ask, we just do these things. Um, so it's really interesting. In, in a lot of ways, it almost kind of reminded me in some ways of near dark um, where you sort of see like that family sort of, coming together and they're the, the have nots, they're dirty, they're wearing old clothes and, you know, and they're just basically going in there and, you know, doing whatever they want because they feel like they can. And they, they, you know, obviously life has kept them down in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So they're reacting to that, uh, which I think is, you know, what they're doing in here too. So, um, and also a Western. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what my point was there, but I just, I was like, but I, I it's, it's interesting because like, you know, I, and I've also seen like some people classify this like hillbilly horror, which I don't think it is at all. Cause first of all, hillbillies don't live in Nevada. Right. Like yeah. we live in West Virginia and like They're, the Appalachians right. and stuff like that. Um, take it from a hillbilly. I know these things. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who has like a ton of family from West Virginia and whose mom was born and raised in West Virginia. This is not hillbilly horror. <laughs> uh, you know, this is very, you know, mutant mountain people horror, but it's not hillbilly horror. Um, but it's interesting because I know you mentioned um, Texas Chainsaw, which obviously I feel a lot of the residue from Texas Chainsaw on this movie. And I think a lot of that comes from Robert Burns, which when I was doing research last night, I realized, oh, he worked on Texas yeah. Chainsaw. Yeah. He worked on this too, which I thought was really interesting because these two movies would make a hell of a double feature if they haven't already, if somebody hasn't done that. Um, they've, they've sort of missed out on a prime opportunity. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me that you have these films that were kind of coming out in the seventies. And you mentioned sort of like that movement of paranoid horror um, that felt very much like, you know, this sort of cinematic reaction to the things that our country had been doing, you know, for like the last, the previous 10 years or so, um, you know, and you realize, you know, the, the quote unquote American dream is basically a lie. You know, it's, we feed ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Right. Um, and I think for me, what makes the Hills have eyes so interesting to watch today is like, you look at sort of where we're at and you're like, wow, this is, I don't know. It just felt a little more real this time around, considering everything that we're kind of dealing with, with sort of like these people who have all these things and these people who don't, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch in the year 2020 is I guess what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah, it's a theme that's going to come up again, you know, in Wes Craven's work, obviously, most notably and most obviously, I would say, in something like The People Under the Stairs. But you yeah. could make a case for even the original Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, we have what we think is the American dream, this uh, family living in the suburbs, you know, with their perfect daughter. And then we find out, like, look at what they have in their past. Look at what they've done. Um, sort of giving lie to this American dream that we've established. So I, I do think it's something that, that Wes Craven returns to um, again and again. And of course, there's the connection. I mentioned it earlier, but um, the whole booby trap thing, you know, that we talked about, I think even on the first episode yeah. comes into play again in The Hills Have Eyes and again is going to come up in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Like making, do you think he was just like running around making booby traps in his spare time though for fun? Do you think he was so mad when Home Alone became such a hit and he was like, was, dude, I'm the I, original Kevin McAllister. Fuck that kid. I know. Like, would it, would, would it would be really funny if like we found out like secretly like they brought in Wes Craven to like consult. <laughs> booby trap consultant. Trap. What you need right? to do is get a bunch of micro machines. Yeah, that'll really get him. Put some ornaments <laughs> under the window, and he's like, "Yeah, just let that tarantula loose." This explains the Abe Snake consulting credit on Home Alone. It all comes full circle, <laughs> and also explains why there was so much hardcore footage in that movie. Oh yeah, Whew. which I thought was weird. I didn't need to see John Hurt and Catherine O'Hara fucking, but I'm not upset about it. I was going to say I did not need to see it either. <laughs> <laughs> Good for the whole family. Um, how does the movie for you measure up to his first film? Because, you know, we, we started out by saying it's it's a more polished movie. And some of that has to do with just the fact that he had about three times the budget. Um, I think he got to make this movie for about $300,000. And 
Last House on the Left was made for 90000 so he had a considerable larger sum of money to work with. But I also think it shows a lot of growth as a, as a technical filmmaker. I just think it's a better-made movie. Um, and these are skills, you know, perhaps that he learned making the fireworks woman. Yeah, no, definitely. Because, I mean, he even edited uh, The Hills Have Eyes. So you can see the growth just in his in, from like sort of the, the technical side of his filmmaking, mm-hmm. um, because he really you, you there, there's an obvious growth between, you know, Last House on the Left, even to the fireworks and then, and then to this, because all three of those movies he edited. Um, and editing, you know, I'm not saying anything that most people don't know, but can make or break a movie. Right. Um, and for as much as I appreciate Last House on the Left, I mean, there's some pretty sloppy edits in that movie. Um, and I think it's a little, it's a little better in the fireworks woman. And then you watch him in Hills Have Eyes and it's very seamless, um, comparatively. Like if you were to watch both those movies back to back, like you would definitely, if I was, you know. If I was watching this like progression of a filmmaker, you know, in the moment, I'd be like, yes, this guy is definitely with each movie moving forward in his craft and his ability to be able to visually tell the stories that he's telling. Um, you know, I think there's there's a, there's growth as a storyteller, I think, as well. Um, I think there's a little he digs a little more deeper into the idea of family here than he did in Last House on the Left. Um, where some of those sort of relationships that, you know, Mary had with like her parents, like we knew like they all loved each other, but there wasn't a lot of back and forth there. I mean, not that the movie really had the time to do that. Um, but I think that there's, you know, it's a bigger cast, you know, I just think that there is definitely a progression there. And I think, you know, we'll see him grow again, you know, as we move forward, um, as well. But I think, you know, when you look at these first three movies and kind of compare, you know, sort of compare the technical aspects, the storytelling aspects, the visual aspects, like there's definitely a, a huge leaps and bounds, like in difference of quality between Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. And this is uh, kind of the end of him as an independent filmmaker, because by the start of the 1980s, he will get picked up by the studios and start making studio films. Uh, the success of The Hills Have Eyes is ultimately what cements him as a horror filmmaker, because now he's made two very successful horror films, and that becomes what studios and producers are interested in him making. So had this movie not become a hit, we may never have A Nightmare on Elm Street. We may never have Scream. Um which is crazy to think about, right? That this is the movie that is said to, I know I don't want to live in a world where Wes Craven isn't a master of horror, but he may have gone on, you know, he, he did not want to return to horror post last house on the left and may have gone on to make other kinds of movies. And we would see him eventually do that with something like music of the heart. He did try to branch out, but ultimately, you know, once you're kind of branded as a horror guy, that's, what they'll let you do, uh, especially at the time that he was working. I think it's a little different now. I don't know. You could probably speak to that better than I could. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because like once you're good at something in Hollywood, like they just don't ever want you to do anything else. Right. Um, you know, and it's kind of a bummer, like for me, like, you know, and then, but then also there's also this sort of mindset amongst horror fans that like, once you've sort of been, you know, part of our, you know, quote unquote family, like we don't want you anywhere else either. Um, because I remember like, you know, after doing something like sinister, there was like this weird thing, like when Scott Derrickson got Dr. Strange and everyone's like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Like this is a horror guy, you know, but like, let him go make some big movies. Like right. obviously his talent. Um, and it's fascinating cause I know that he originally was supposed to do, um, he was looking to work with Sean Cunningham again. And I know that there was something about like uh, a Hansel and Gretel type of movie that they were looking to possibly make, which is interesting because that's also about cannibalism in a way. Um, and boy, would I like to see, you know, Wes really dive into some grim fairy tales. Yeah, definitely. Um, ooh, yeah. Um, but ultimately in a way he sort of does here just, you know, with kids with, you know, or not with a witch, but like with, you know, a cannibal family. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I'm glad this movie did as well as it did because obviously what followed made a huge impact on me as a fan. Um, but I think ultimately, I think in my, like now sort of in retrospect, I kind of want, wished maybe Wes had gotten to do what he wanted to do because just being happy for him as a human being, sure, you know, but ultimately I'm selfish and you know, <laughs> stay here. You know. Well, and I, I think the great thing about somebody like Wes Craven or George Romero, um, two guys who were sort of pigeonholed into working in horror, they still found ways to make the movies that they wanted to make. I mean, John Carpenter kind of did the same thing where it was like, yeah. I want to make Westerns. Fuck you. Make horror movies. Okay. I'll turn I'll Westerns into, <laughs> into horror movies. Um, George Romero had all these ideas that he wanted to present and was only allowed to do them in the context of a horror movie and same with Wes Craven. So he still, I'm with you that it would have been great. Who knows what movies we were denied, you know, had Wes Craven been allowed to make whatever he wanted to make, but he still, I think found ways to tell the stories that he wanted to tell, to work out the ideas that he wanted to work out to, to present the social criticism that he wanted to present all within the, under the guise of horror movies. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I, and again, it's like when you look at like, I I think when you know growing up, like obviously '80s horror was you know my wheelhouse because I you know kind of grew up during it and during that era, era, um, era of, of of genre storytelling. So of course, like I have a large amount of affection for it, but I've really <coughs> come to be appreciative of '70s horror in a way. That I don't think I was when I was a kid. Because obviously I did watch 70s horror when I was a kid. Like, you know, Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, um, you know, things like that. Suspiria. Um, but I'm so, like, as an adult now, I, I have found such a new appreciation for films of that decade mm -hmm. in particular. Because they are so fascinating to me. Like, I don't know if people know this, but, like, I'm super obsessed, you know, because I mentioned Woodstock with the fireworks. From, I'm super obsessed with Woodstock as a cultural event. And what, what it represented to the people who were there, to the people who weren't, um, and what was going on um, in society at that point that that, that thing happened. Um, and so for me, like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of horror that's happening now that is very reflective of where we are in, in our society. But I think this, for me, this, the decade that really captured it the best was the 70s, because 70s horror really feels extremely reactionary um you know to what you know our country was facing and the moral dilemmas and you know things of that nature you know as a response to everything that we had kind of done over you know the previous decade and i just think it's really fascinating to me um and i've really kind of re-fallen in love with those movies in that in that way yeah um particularly in american genre filmmaking like Suspiria is something a little different and, you know, there's obviously a ton of, you know, Italian movies from the 70s that are, you know, I think have a different purpose. But I think when you look at the American genre stories that were coming out during, you know, that time, like, especially like you look at like Invasion of the Body Snatcher 78, um, there's just something really fascinating about the movies that were being released and the stories that were being told um, and how a lot of them had these sort of bigger concepts, but yet felt very intimate um, and very personal. And I think the eighties kind of moved away from that, but I think that's the Hills have eyes is one of those really good sort of examples of movies that have like these sort of really brutal outland, I don't want to say outlandish, but brutal sort of, and again, I don't want to say fantasy because I don't even think fantasy works in it, but it's like, bigger concepts than yeah. just sort of, you know, it, it just, there's something about it that really kind of claws at you um, in a way that maybe watching like Fright Night doesn't. And again, I don't say that because I, you know, I love Fright Night. You know that we know that. Um, but there's just something you get a very different response when you're watching a lot of movies from this time versus when you're watching movies from the eighties. Um, and I think that's just really exciting to me. And Wes Craven, you know, really kind of codified that. He kind of defined 70s horror, I think, along with Toby Hooper. I mean, uh, Toby Hooper definitely set the table. Yeah. But, and you then know. All, you see, like, if you Freed can kind of come in, 
you know, and I guess Polanski to a degree, even though I don't well, watch that was TV anymore. Sixties, but uh, oh, that's right. You're right. Sorry, sorry. You're right. God, I always forget that that's sixties. Last House and Hills Have Eyes are really two of the definitive. You know, when you talk about the kind of horror movies that were being made in the 1970s, those are two of the seminal movies that people kind of point to. And I'm not the first person to say this. I know Elra Kane has said this before. I don't even know if he's the first person to say it, but you know, Wes Craven is maybe the only filmmaker who defined, redefined a genre th three times in three different decades. Yeah. And he really kind of defined seventies horror with these two films. Um, his next film, which we will get to on the next episode, perhaps less so, it's a made-for-TV movie <laughs> called Summer of Fear, uh, but also released under the title, oh, shoot, Stranger in Our House. Yes. So that's what we're going to get to next time with Linda Blair. Um, but I'm excited to revisit that one because I've only seen it once. Um, I don't know that I've even seen it the whole way through, which is just terrible. Well, that's okay. That's the whole purpose of yeah, this podcast. Yeah, I read the book. As a kid, I read the book as a kid because I used to love Lois Duncan. Yeah. So, yeah, but that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, I know it's funny. I'm forgetting we have like these little television movies we have to sneak in. Yeah. Before we get to Deadly again. Blessing, which I forgot earlier when I was talking about like his move to studios, I completely forgot Deadly Blessing. I jumped right ahead to Swamp Thing. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's funny. I have only ever seen Deadly Blessing once. So I will be excited to revisit that as well. It's going to be fun. I, I recently found used DVDs of both Cursed and Music of the Heart. So I think my collection is now complete. Nice. Yeah. Once, nice. My, once my Vampire in Brooklyn Blu-ray arrives, I will have the filmography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have my Vampire in Brooklyn DVDs. So I think I'm good there. I think you're good. I don't know if it needs to, because I didn't own it. I needed to complete the collection, but... Uh, I don't know that I would have upgraded. It's a it's a bummer we're not going to do the movies he produced too because then we could talk about Wishmaster Dracula two thousand. Yeah, and the Hills Have Eyes three, aka Mind Ripper. Oh boy, I know. I've never <laughs> seen it. Uh, I haven't seen that one. It has nothing to do with the other two Hills Have Eyes. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> but that's going to do it yeah, for us uh, for this episode of Craven Craven. Make sure you go to at Craven Craven pod and follow us on Twitter and find the link for the directed by Abe snake t-shirts that you will all want to wear uh, so that you too can sport the deepest cut of a Wes Craven reference you can possibly find. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, I just, this has been really fun for me um, and I'm very excited to, uh, Start moving into sort of the, I don't want to say glossier era of, era. of Wes, Wes's work. Um, but I'm really like, I just, I'm glad that this exists because it really gave me a chance to kind of sit down and watch movies that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. I mean, I probably would have watched Hills of Eyes, but uh, Last House on the Left, I've definitely come to appreciate more now. So, yay. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. Thanks, Heather. And uh, we will see you guys next time for what is it summer of fear summer <laughs> of fear <laughs> thanks everybody 